Hello and welcome to the ET PhD team podcast, the podcast here to help you with your relationship with food and body by giving you evidence-based techniques to support yourself with a sprinkling of feminism, a dash of dismantling diet culture and a side of vulnerability as we share our own messy lives with you. I'm Emilia, a registered nutritionist and PhD with the sole purpose of making your life happier and healthier. If you love it, please do go wild and share it. And if you're ready for support with our coaching, details are in the show notes. Hello and welcome to episode number 168 of the ETPHD team podcast with myself and Anna. Hi Anna, how are you? Hello, I am just about drying off. You're missing some fine weather in the UK right now. Oh, I keep hearing it's like torrential rain and storms. Yes, great. So good. I'm on coat three of the day. Oh my word! Has it gone through to your pants yet? That's the that's the question. Thankfully, the coats that I've been wearing are like down to my knees, so so far all good. All yeah, good. but I've got that anti-sexual assault coat, the really ugly one that comes down to my ankles, and I wore that just before I left to go to come to Austin, and my pants were wet because it got so wet. Because I don't, <laughs> I don't really believe in umbrellas anymore. I feel like they're useless, but on that they are, especially when it's windy. Well, yeah. And you're obviously in South Africa tonight. How is that? I was going to say, God, um, I'm here complaining about the wind and it's like 25 degrees. Yeah, it's right. raining in the UK. Turn it down a bit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, like time for gratitude. Uh, yeah, no, it's lovely here. If you haven't been, guys, I definitely recommend adding it to the bucket list. It's a nice combination of, uh, I think what you were saying about uh, Texas uh, media, Nice combination of the city when you're in Cape Town, but also, you know, you're by the ocean. It's the nature. You can hike. Uh, the mm. food is really lovely. People are very friendly. So, yeah. Oh, great. Well, two of you are there. You and Steph are both in South Africa right now. Weird. Very yes. weird. Yeah. She's in uh, Johannesburg, uh, which is quite far from Cape Town, actually. I think it's a three, four hour flight from here. Oh, wow. Nah. Okay, well, Austin is great and it's freezing cold. So, yeah, I think they had a cold snap when I arrived and I think it lasts for the next two weeks or so, but it's beautiful. It's very, um, like, New York winter vibes, you know, like, with all the, like, the lights and still they've still got pumpkins everywhere and it's very, like, fall-like. So, I mean, I absolutely don't mind. And I just have to buy more clothes, which is a real shame. Um, Okay. I think we should just get cracking on the questions. Anna, do you want to go first? Yes. Um, around what age does body positivity and relationship with food tend to be at its lowest? Do you think as the years have gone by, despite your line of work, that it's improved? Thinking back from age 21 to now, 27, is when I've suffered most with my relationship with body and food. It's just got to the point where I know I deserve to heal and can better afford it. Great question. So interestingly, I wrote a post about something some, along these lines the other day around um, what we often see are like big challenges to relationship with food and body during like changes of major life transitions, especially when they're related to our reproductive hormones um, because of the role of estrogen, for example, and things like our hunger um and our reproductive hormones in terms of our emotional regulation, et cetera. So we tend to see the biggest struggles around like puberty, pregnancy, menopause. Um, they are not necessarily for everyone. Those kind of can be key kind of quote unquote trigger points. That being said, it's really more about life transitions for yourself. So if in your early twenties, you went, maybe you left uni or you went to uni or you started a different type of job or you broke up from a relationship or your parents separated, anything could happen in your life or you lost someone, that can be a big challenge to your relationship with food and your body. And then I think on top of that, there's like this, like the social side of it and the environmental side of it and that at certain ages of our life, depending on where we are in our own life cycle, we're exposed to different types of messaging. So maybe so that was early 20s that you started to struggle so that would have been what eight years ago so when was that 2015 so that really probably what that was probably when we were coming into this more healthful way of thinking about our bodies um but again like if you were maybe like me I'm 36 so like I was peak Kate Moss era 
that would have been the time that I was really struggling with things as well as obviously major life transitions because I was at uni and all these other things so it's not like there's a specific age but I definitely do think as you um get a little bit older like not you specifically you're still in your 20s you're still a baby but like in general um I think as we get a bit older there is a bit more of a shift to starting to feel a little bit more worthy in ourselves whether we act on that or not is is like individual but I think we do start to feel a little bit more like that and I think now like especially with Gen Z I think that you're Gen Z are exposed to so much more information now that you can probably get support a little bit earlier like we didn't I didn't know that I had a disordered relationship with food and I didn't really like I thought I didn't know that that was a thing whereas now it's like so out there and all all this information is out there so I think we'll see a shift again in terms of ages of people getting support and things like that so you know my clients range from late teens to um late 60s at the moment so there's no specific age range mm, I was yeah just thinking, I told you sorry no I, I was just thinking obviously like like you were saying 2015 2016 that was like the height of strong not skinny type movement because I, I think I, did you put it in your email the the Kate Moss Topshop range and I was like oh my gosh yes that was like the height of my teens that's what I was aiming for um but so I'm just a little bit older than this client there was definitely that point where I was going to say it's more fashionable but women wanted more shape to their body rather than the size zero supermodel type type look yeah do you know what that's so funny because I would have been at uni I remember being at uni and thinking had been trying to be skinny for so long and there was a picture of this like model who used to be a page three model and she then she started weight, lifting weights and I had it on my phone and I was like this is what I want to look like this muscly da, da, da. didn't realize that's when I went to compete in obviously it was not the way yeah, to do yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> let's just walk over that. <laughs> yeah, there was definitely a shift at that point for sure um yeah. okay yeah So oh no, I was just going to say that I think from my experience with clients as well, it's in a way, because I think in puberty, right, in teens, if I think about my personal experiences as well, and growing up in Greece especially, I think culturally-wise, it was all, there's also a lot of pressure for women to look a certain way. I mean, in every kind of country, not just Greece, but I think kind of growing up in a, in a, in a seaside location where you kind of have to expose your body most of the time of the year by being at, uh, on the beach quite a lot, I think that's kind of when it started to become a really big thing for uh, for me. And I've noticed with clients that puberty is a very triggering period. And those things may stay a little bit dormant for quite a while until something triggers them later on in life. Kind of what you're saying, Emilia, with the major life transitions, especially like things like pregnancy and menopause. Mm, absolutely. Okay, Denai, question. Uh, how to stay consistent with habit building when life gets busy? I think this is a bit of a um, false dichotomy in that sometimes I think actually being busy can really help with habits. Not always. Not if you're spending two hours in the gym meditating for 45 minutes a day, having to do an hour session of yoga or it doesn't count and having to make every meal from scratch all the time. Probably not. But if you think about like having non-negotiables for your habits is really important and something I'll do with all of my clients I think we all do this is set non-negotiables and it's so easy to say well my non-negotiables is going to be four times of gym four times a week going to the gym every day meditating because these are the things that like I really need to feel grounded like no non-negotiables should be like the minimum the minimum of like if I do more than that then great so my non-negotiables might be meditating for like or, or breathing which could take two minutes every day so it doesn't matter if it's a two minute session or a 25 minute session. That's my non-negotiable. My non-negotiable, actually, I don't actually have a gym non-negotiable anymore, but my non-negotiable is at least getting out for a walk or move my body in some way once a day. So again, it could be a 10 minute walk. It's not about like we have this desire to like set these crazy non-negotiables and it's not like it's not feasible. And, it, and so I think that's one thing to do. But I also think like 
when you're busy sometimes it can actually really help like I've got a client at the moment and she's um so busy with her um, family and her work and all of this work that we're doing and she's one of the she's so busy one of the busiest people I know and does a lot for everyone else and she still manages to do everything pretty much all of the time I'm like okay you're probably like you're like on the other end of that and it's not a perfectionism perfectionism thing it's actually that she's got to the point in her life where she's like this is how I need to timetable and schedule my days because I am that busy. And so she runs like that and, and actually is quite successful for doing that. So I think, like, and, and she has family, by the way, this is not like a a, a, a sort of single non-dependent person traveling in America being like, you can do whatever you want if you put your mind to it. Because I'm not using myself as an example here at all. Obviously, there are certain situations that kind of take time away, but that's why non-negotiables are really helpful. I think you just have to plan, prepare, and not set yourself like, wild targets to set to yeah I've had a conversation with a client this week who's had the craziest craziest month with work I think she's had one full weekend off the rest of like and that that's been it she works weekends and it's it's been manic and the first couple of weeks were like yeah do you know what some of some of the habits have slid and that's okay but when we spoke this week, it was, no, we need those non-negotiables in place. Think about how, because it was affecting how she was showing up at work, how she was showing up around her family at home. And it's okay, well, these aren't just habits that you tick off each week in your update. These are things you do to support yourself. I'm not I'm not here telling you, oh, I'd really like you to do it. You've got to want to do it. And I think thinking about how, you, how you're framing it to yourself is also really important. Mm agreed okay how do you differentiate thoughts and feelings and determine when to sit with your feelings or separate and or distract yourself from your thoughts for example i am not my thoughts is this fact or just my thought come back to the breath and let go of the thought when does breath work yoga walking all the tools become just another avoidance coping mechanism replacement for previously or often used food avoidance which I think is such a good question. <laughs> and we spoke about it a bit <clears throat> in our update because this is a, <clears throat> this is a, a not a struggle, but a, a point of contention I've had with my work with learning and, and practicing the, around Buddhism. <clears throat> because with Buddhism, it's kind of like the whole idea is that obviously you don't get lost in the links of the thoughts that you have and you notice the thought. But like with mindfulness, for example, you notice the thought and you come back to your breath and I sat in class once and I was like, well, where's the line between I recognize this thought and I'm not going to entertain it and I'm choosing to pretend that thought doesn't exist. You know, there's a very fine line. And for me, I think it's it, the, the line is, is acknowledgement and acceptance. So we spoke about the example, um, myself and this client, of the grief tunneling, of where of basically what is thought postponement. So we do this with some of our clients' body image work too, where if you notice a thought come up, rather than letting it preoccupy you for the whole day, you say, right, I recognise that thought, I'm going to pop it in my notes, and then I'm going to give myself 20 minutes at five o'clock every day to run through anything that still requires being run through at that time. So if it's a grief thought, probably does require that sitting with that and feeling that, whereas if it's a body checking thought, then maybe it doesn't. Um, and so I think for me, I would say the line is like the acknowledgement of it because it was really, really tough because if you, let's, I, I know you always use dating as an example, but if you think about when you break up with someone, you do have to process the grief probably of breaking up with that person, but you don't want to spend all day sad and thinking about that person all the time because it distracts you from work. Sometimes that is required and an essential part of the grief process. But sometimes it's just you telling yourself, oh, I wish I did that, or I wish I did, didn't do that, or I wish I said this. So having that space to actively sit with that can be really, really helpful. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. Uh, and sometimes I tell clients, right, that distraction is not always an unhelpful thing, it can be very helpful depend at times, depending on the intention behind it, when it comes from a place of having acknowledged and having accepted what's going on and I use that example sometimes with the uh when we explain the surf the urge to to manage the urges to binge it right sometimes it can get a little bit much but 
and it's okay to do self-soothing things that can distract you, but you're not doing them to avoid the urge or to fight or to resist it. You're doing it from a place of having tried to sit with it and accepting it and then doing something to, in a way, it's almost like a healthy redirection. I, I, I like to reframe it. Yeah, and I think with the surf the urge thing, for people that don't really know what that is, it's the idea of surfing the urge is really to um, notice a thought and we use it a lot with cravings and, and the desire to overeat or binge eat, but you can use it for any sort of craving that you have. Maybe you have a craving to get lost in a thought. Maybe you have a craving to drink alcohol, whatever it is. And the idea is it's a mindfulness-based distress tolerance technique where you the idea is that cravings last probably roughly half an hour-ish. And if you can sit with that and be mindful of where it shows up in your body and not try and escape from it, you start to learn that actually you can deal with these thoughts and feelings that come up without having to escape from them. So with surfing the urge, we 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 desire or we would rather that you don't actually distract yourself initially because the idea is that you learn to sit with these things, but that can sometimes feel too much, especially if it's a really heavy thought or feeling or a really intense craving and so distraction can be helpful at least initially in that or like you said denying like redirecting can be useful in that but what I prefer maybe is to do something more like a body scan during that time so actually you're doing something but you're still doing something whilst you're staying within your body and you're still noticing those things I think that can be a really empowering way of doing it rather than I'm going to go and do the dishes or I'm going to do something else which can be really useful and I know a lot of like coaches and PTs will say if you want to snack go and do something for half an hour and then come back and on a surface level that can be quite an easy task for like that may be something I might do to be fair now because I know generally my desires because I'm sitting like like where I am right now I'm looking at the fridge like of course I'm going to think that about snacking so sometimes that can be helpful but we do want to think about sitting in that throughout the craving. Mm. I love what you said about the body scan though I think that's that could be something potentially obviously you're checking in with how different areas of your body feels and maybe if you can kind of notice what well, this is how my chest feels when I'm craving or trying to surf the urge and you might then be able to link it a bit earlier I'm just obviously going off on a tangent now but if you can notice those feelings obviously relating it back to my anxiety but I get a lump in my throat and that's when I'm like mm, okay something's a little bit off here what do I need to do that's not a tangent at all I think that's such an important like part of it's part of somatic work it's part of like learning to sit at home in your body and I think in one of my emails recently I was talking about when I was on a date and some and the guy said something and my body like seized up and then my chest was like really tight and, and logically in my brain I wanted to say one thing but my body was like no you know what this means this is the red flag this is like you need to act in this way and it was like my body picked it up before my mind did and that's also like you're so right sometimes with like especially with emotional eating our desire to emotionally eat often doesn't come from our growling stomach but we might be feeling it in our throat or somewhere else and it can be a really key sign to go oh that's the drive to do this I'm going to redirect it and do something that manages my anxiety so I think that's such a good point okay Anna Oh, I've got a couple of physique-based ones. Uh, do you think it's okay to want to look more muscular slash fit slash athletic because you just think it looks cool and like you can do cool shit as opposed to wanting to change yourself because you think you aren't enough and to fit the ideal beauty standard? It feels like it's a different goal, but maybe it isn't. Since I was a child, I always thought the strong characters in films, Batman... Million Dollar Baby, Rocky, Thor were so cool and impressive and always made me want to be like them. Maybe it's more about ability and skill than looks, but even then they look awesome. Side note, I do appreciate these characters aren't real <laughs> and that in normal everyday life, they aren't attainable. <laughs> well, we were going to say that, so <laughs> thanks for clarifying. <laughs> yeah, for sure it is. Like, you're absolutely allowed to have a preference for the way that your body or your face or your hair or your anything looks you're absolutely allowed to do that and if you like the look of muscular then great I was on a date the other night and we were talking about types and stuff like that and I, it was 
he was like are you sure you're not bisexual like everyone tends to ask me these days and um <laughs> no and then we were talking about types and I was like yeah if I had a type for a woman it'd probably be like x y and z and then and then he was like yeah for my types and women it's like this is like what I quite like in a body and I'm like that's fine it's such human nature to say I have a preference for the way that my body looks or the way that like the person that I'm attracted to the way that their body looks and yes we love people for their souls yes we love people for their like the connection and the way that they make us feel and the way that we make them feel and all of these things but at the end of the day we're human beings and I think it's really reductionist and really goes against evolutionary biology to say you're not like you should never care about the way that your body looks like if you don't then you are winning at life and I respect you so much and day to day I don't hugely care about the way that my body looks sometimes I do and and like I get a bit like oh my butt's even smaller than it was last year like oh, that's annoying like because I care about that but not to the like the point is as long as it's not taken over or negatively impacting parts of your life and I think a while ago I did a reel on muscularity oriented disordered eating which is like this extreme desire for muscularity so bodybuilding would be a prime example of this and it is kind of a subclass of disordered eating um and it includes things like, you know, when we have a really big focus on like protein intake or bulking and cutting and um, again, being really meticulous with tracking our macros and stuff like that. Um, but that there's some cool research that like drives psychosocial impairment um, and like neg- has a negative impact on like yourself, increases risk of emotional distress or depression um, and functional impairment as well. So I think that, like this is not what you're experiencing, but I do think it's important that 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 extreme end of it is also talked about a little bit more. And if you're a competitor or have been a competitor, you might relate to some of these things, um, because it's not and it's not just in men; it's men and women. Yeah, I think Absolutely. it always blows people's minds that we can be like, no, no, it's okay to have a preference for your own body. <laughs> Absolutely, imagine. Yeah, I think we talk so much about body neutrality that a lot of people think that it's that we're against having aesthetic goals, right? But you can't have aesthetic goals. And I think the client made a really great point in the question. That comes from a place of empowerment. It doesn't come from a place of her not feeling good enough. And that's the main distinction. Agreed. Deny, go for it. What are your top tips for pulling yourself out of a rut when you regress back to your old negative habits around food, such as using food as a coping mechanism and overeating? Mm. Um, I would go, my top tips would be, think back to what makes the th- two things that you know allow you to feel good and that will be different for everyone. Um, so it might be like for me, it would be like meditation, going to the gym, that type of thing. Um, and start there. I think acceptance that these types of ruts, as you called it, are totally normal. And there will be times maybe for your whole life that you go back to emotionally in a little bit, and that's totally fine. And rather than feeling, there's a really important distinction between a lapse and a relapse, and in disordered eating recovery where when you have a bit of a slip, like when you start to emotionally eat, you don't class it as a relapse because when you do, that increases the risk of like the absence violation effect where we just kind of go even more into it because we think, well, I've failed now, so I'll keep going. Whereas if you call it like a lapse or a slip, it's like, okay, well, that's a total normal thing to happen on the road to recovery. Slips, slip ups and slips will happen frequently throughout. And the, 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 regularity of those will get less and less and less over time but they might still happen sometimes and it's not a big deal it happens it's it's expected sometimes and all we need to do is treat ourselves with compassion and, and like remind ourselves that we're human and pick a couple of things that we know that we enjoy that that support us and start there and and rebuild from there yeah I think for me the first thing is that acceptance and kindness that yes, this has happened and it's okay. Let's crack on and continue. Like it, it, I think there's always that worry when it does, especially if, I don't know, obviously with this client, if they're quite new to the journey, but if you're having like 
really good consistent few weeks and then there's this blip and you're like oh crap what have I done wrong nothing we expect this to happen and actually it's really useful when it does because we can go okay let's let's delve in and, and see what's going on here um and so I think initially making sure that you're not beating yourself up for it it's going to make it a hell of a lot easier to get through it as well yeah exactly actually based on, uh, on what you said Anna this is actually a, a client that we've been working together for a little bit over a year now I think it's been a while now since you sent that question but uh, I think recently I've had a conversation with some of my longer term clients because I think they're when they go through a week where it feels quite challenging for whatever that reason might be, they're really harsh on themselves again because they have that expectation that I've worked in my relationship with food for over a year, so I should never really be experiencing uh, any kind of emotional eating or setbacks, right? And I think it was a really good opportunity for for this client because she got to practice a lot more kind of self compassion because that was kind of what was keeping her stuck in um, in that overeating cycle kind of exactly what Amelia was saying well I've ruined it now so I might as well and all of the guilt and the shame that came with that um, and um, and I think for her kind of that one habit that really worked to get back into normality was normalizing it and then the meditation and just bringing it back to the mindful eating mm. I think as well obviously if this is a longer term client you've got to think if you are working together for a year now, life's going to throw some curveballs. <laughs> and, and it's great that you you are still working together because it just gives you an, an opportunity to work through something new and different and challenging entirely. Yeah, exactly. Okay. When, this is Lynn's question, when is a calorie deficit not equal to weight loss? I've upped my ca cardio training for a race and the weight isn't coming down despite calorie deficit. Is this just time? well <laughs> so it depends how long it's been right if over time your weight is not coming down and when I say over time like if your weight hasn't come down over a month um then you're not in a calorie deficit what I would say is that if you're new to training like weight training you might see fluctuations like that might slow a little bit if you've started taking creatine that might have an, like that could have an impact on it if you are doing tons of training for a race then you might have like a lot of doms or and or like an inflammatory response and that can have a potential impact on weight take multiple measurements so take waist measurements take hip measurements um because if they are coming down and weight is not then you can then it's likely that you are still dropping a bit of body fat and it's just all of these other factors like again like stress carbohydrate intake etc um but if they're not and your weight is not coming down then you're you're actually just not in a deficit and um it's really interesting, actually, something that I spoke about at a conference that Emma and I did last weekend. Was that only last weekend? Yeah. Last weekend um, was like the individual responses we get to increases in cardio. So there was a really cool study that looked at, um, they took overweight or obese women and they got them all to do 400 calories of exercise on a bike. And then they gave them ad lib some food intake so they basically give you like a table of food and they say they eat what you want until you're satiated basically and what they found was that before like so they, they came in and did that one day and then they came in and did without psychology right and on average appetite and, and calorie intake was not different between the cardio condition and the control condition and so the result of the study was that there's no um that part of the study there's no impact of 400 calories of exercise training on um, energy intake but what they then did is they got all of the results so that was the average they got all of the people and they like put them on a graph and said what happened to this person what happened to this person and the result was it, the graph that came out of it was impeccable in terms of like symmetry some people found that that increased their cal their card ca calorie intake by like four or five hundred calories and actually put them into a surplus, even though they'd done exercise. Some people found that the exercise reduced their their energy intake. And so they were even in even more of a deficit from the exercise. And the range was huge. And so what we see is that for people, sometimes you'll get um, personal trainers and stuff saying, oh, well, if you're not dropping body fat, like, and you don't want to drop your food, let's just do more cardio. Let's just do more cardio. 
but ultimately for some people that might work because your energy expenditure is going to go up and your appetite doesn't change so much but for other people your appetite can go up so much that you then start overeating and actually it becomes counterproductive so when people especially when I'm working with people who are doing like marathons and stuff like that I'm very mindful of that increasing in hunger for some people and of course the reductions and it might be that you're like well I'm tracking my calories so I'm still definitely in a deficit sometimes we can miss calories even without recognizing that we're doing it and again there's tons of research on this like I think there was like a one or two year study that looked at people that were supposedly in a 500 calorie deficit all the way through and they genuinely were tracking they thought like they were in a 500 calorie deficit and by the end they were actually in a 40 calorie surplus after two years because like and, and they were they were adamant and it's not a lie and it's not a failure like tracking calories is so hard to do accurately like so expenditure it's just like dietitians can't do it. there's a study on dietitians that they, like the average are 200 calories out like it's such a hard thing to do so it's possible that actually your intake is actually um higher than you realize and when you're doing a lot of cardio or like training for a race your appetite and your hunger is so high that maybe you're having like bites and things elsewhere or your portion sizes are getting a little bit bigger if you don't weigh your food and things like that because of that hunger and so you're actually eating a little bit more so these are all things to consider but again the first step is obviously like taking those multiple measurements how can you find balance between fitness physique goals and life That's an age-old question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, again, it's a bit of a false dichotomy. They, they don't have to be separate. Like, why why do they have to be separate? You People think that to have a physique goal, you need to do, like, this excessive training and be meticulous with your food. You, you, like, you really don't. It's not as hard as you think it is like to be excessively lean yeah you definitely do but that's not healthy and we don't like advocate that but to gain muscle really all you need to do is eat enough protein and eat enough food and train hard but training hard also means training smart so that means not spending more than an hour in the gym like five days a week like that's an hour in the gym five days a week like that that's going to be the same as some like someone who doesn't have those excessive goals or or like you know three to five sessions a week say um so I think try not to overthink it too much I really I really do and if it's fat loss then yes your social like your choices at social occasions might have to change but you can still have those social occasions you maybe just drink tequila instead of a glass of wine or you like are you order like you swap your carbs at dinner for some salad um sorry about that um there's so many like swaps that you can make for things that they're not mutually exclusive you can like you can do both it's just about remembering that it's a choice everything you're doing is a choice and to like honor in like what's in line with what's important like most important to you yeah the value that's what i would mention i think it's really thinking about your values here because you want the fitness and your goals whether that's a physique goal or a non-physique goal to be adding onto your life uh based on what your overall values are if if those goals are taking away from your values then it's thinking is that kind of worth it and what you want from this but if they're not then great and i think that's what our clients kind of realize when they start working with us right is that they can have those goals and also enjoy their life and live in line with their values and i'll I can't remember the exact words my clients used recently, but when one of her check-ins was how amazed she felt when actually, without even dieting right now, because she just works on her relationship with food, not only she's experienced some improved body composition, but it's the most she's been out, the most she's felt connected with her family and her friends, she's been enjoying holidays. So you can certainly be able to enjoy all of that. Mm-hmm. Um. Is it deny go for it? I think it's me, yes. Um, how to cope with family and friends being so heavily influenced by diet culture and constantly making comments about calories and food when you're trying to improve your relationship with food? 
so we've discussed this a few times haven't we mm-hmm. um and i hate to be the cliche of the three of us but someone's gonna say it is boundaries um of course that's really important you don't have you the thing is like you don't have to listen to these comments you don't have to have these conversations you can say you can set a boundary around that and that's essential but what i would like to pick up on is like how to cope with family and friends being so heavily influenced by diet culture that's them that's their stuff and usually when we're triggered by that is because we've got our own work to do and the answer is not trying to change them it's consistently trying to do the work on ourselves so i know that in the past you know if i was around people that had disordered habits with food or exercise it would really annoy me and it would i'd feel really triggered by it and frustrated by it and it would blame i would blame them they're not i'm not their responsibility they're they're allowed to do whatever they want and the realization of that for me was like i need to do that work on myself so that that doesn't bother me now i could be around anyone with their own like disordered relationship with food and i can i can identify it sure i can but i can let it go and say well that's their choice to do that it doesn't impact me whatsoever what's helpful for me is having regular meals what's helpful for me is making sure that i'm eating enough and honoring my hunger just because that's not the right thing for them that doesn't matter so i think kind of calling yourself on that and like you can't change other people but you can manage what you let into your space mm-hmm. funnily enough my therapy session today was all about boundaries and it was great <laughs> <laughs> not attacked at all <clears throat> um okay um when your week is not going to plan what are some of the ways to reset to ground yourself, to make a shift, to refocus on what matters most. Noticing when this happens to me, I am aware of it, but passive, and it will take all week at least before I reset. Getting stuck in that on Monday, I will go again. I get stuck in victim mode rather than taking ownership of all of my choices. Would love to hear how other people handle this. First of all, that's really great self-awareness just knowing that you fall into that victim mindset and mentality and how then that drags into kind of the, the rest of the week. So I think that just the, the fact that you recognize it, it's you can use that to your advantage because now it's about actually taking that responsibility. And I think back to, I think we went through that in a, in a question earlier about how to kind of stay consistent with habits when life gets busy. Similarly here, right? It's having those non-negotiables that you can re- return back to and starting really, really, small and choosing what those are for you and I know Emilia you mentioned earlier perhaps maybe going to the gym for a session or doing some meditation or maybe getting your journal out or even if it's just going for for a walk or even if it's just maybe getting your grocery shopping done and uh, cooking a nourishing uh, dinner what is that one thing that helps you feel more connected to to your values and how you want to be showing up mm, I think because you've got that awareness as well you can question what purpose it serves holding on to those feelings and ultimately is it a good use of your time and your energy and absolutely echo what Denai said in doing those things that can help ground you um I say this, obviously, uh, this isn't something I do. It's the kind of person that I wish I was. Um, and I see Rod's doing it with like the movement side of things. And I mean, I, no, to be fair, it's only been when I've been driving and I have to like shake out the energy. Um, and I think dancing and that kind of movement as well can just really help to change how you're feeling and switch that energy about. Yeah love that yeah I think it comes back to what I was saying earlier too about like a lapse versus a relapse and not catastrophizing things like slips are normal drops in motivation are normal ruts are normal but waking up every day and thinking like it's a choice now what I'm going to do what I'm going to do next and I think like it's trying to get out of this mentality of all or nothing thinking and black and white thinking and perfectionism of like this is your entire life and this is going to happen. You're going to have weeks where on a Tuesday you're kicked in the butt. But just because it's Wednesday tomorrow doesn't change. Like what if it was like the day of the week 
has no impact on your body whatsoever so why does everything have to start on a Monday it's because of years and years of saying like diet starts Monday like that's what it's coming from but realistically your body doesn't work on 24 hour clocks or seven day weeks it works on like this is your entire life and every day is the every moment is all we have and every moment is a fresh opportunity to make a choice in line with what's helpful for us um it doesn't matter what day it is and it doesn't matter what time it is um so yeah I mean I would just echo what you guys say really and trying to call yourself on that all or nothing thinking Mm. side note if anybody doesn't they need to follow uh diet starts monday account on instagram because it is just lols it is brilliant i think i do follow that don't yeah. i <laughs> i get a lot of audio from my reels from them yeah exactly exactly <laughs> it's very good agreed um okay anna go for it i've been hearing a lot about the zoe zoe studies for nutrition and health are these accurate would you say <laughs> We got asked this recently because somebody that we respect was advertising one of the studies for it. You can't blanket all research and say that it's good or bad in general. I think some of the research that they're doing is important. I think some of the research that they're doing has potentially got some sort of crossover with funding. I'm not sure, like people who fund the research, I'm not actually sure on that. Um, I don't rate all of the people that I've seen that are involved in it. Um, There's a specific example of someone who's a medical doctor who says that calorie deficit is not important, is not important, um, which is just ludicrous. And someone that I respect actually saw him at a conference and um, quizzed him on his thoughts on sweetener and he said there's no research to say that sweeteners we've got all this research to say that sweeteners are bad and then this other doctor who I respect was like well can you show me the research because we've got this specific meta-analysis that came out at this time that said this was all fine and he just was like no you're wrong and couldn't defend himself at all and he's a medical doctor talk about nutrition and this is one of the problems and he's very well known at the moment he's on loads of podcasts podcasts from people that I kind of respect as well and I'm like I don't really understand why um because some of his advice is good and this is I think the problem with a lot of nutrition advice if someone puts out a lot of good stuff then when they put out a bit of questionable stuff people are like okay and and, and that can be tricky to navigate so I don't have an opinion on their research as a whole I have an opinion on some of the way that it's communicated and I have an opinion on the some of the people that are involved in the research in terms of not on the people themselves but on the quality of nutrition information that they're putting out um so I would I would with anything like this go at it with a critical mind and if you're not sure about something then you know either do the research or speak to someone that you do respect in that field and ask them on their opinion on it like if there was something around maybe psychology that I maybe wasn't 100% sure on because all research is different right like I can look at nutrition research and, and kind of critique that relatively well but psychology research I'm I'm fine at it actually I got a message recently from a clinical psychologist and I was buzzing off my tips because she said I was talking about attachment styles and she said I just want to say that it's so nice to hear someone outside of the realm of specific psychology talk about these things and not make it pop culture and I was like to me that's great because it means that like validation ultimately from someone in a different field who kind of I'm not just like oh avoidant attachment styles blah blah anyway so I'm very mindful of the way that I critique this stuff right so I would maybe go to Sula who I love the health psychologist and I'd say like what are your thoughts on this research and so you can always do that and we're always open you can always send me something like what are your thoughts on this specific research to run it like run it by someone if you're not sure um because I think that it's really hard to navigate and I wish there was a clearer answer then I go for it um, I have found that when reflecting on the overeating episodes and following the overeating cycle exercise the last bit around what I would do next time really ignites my inner critic as it effectively turns into me telling myself what I shouldn't have done how do you differentiate between the critical shouldn't have done that and the empowering what I would do next time when they're effectively the same thing 
for reference, we have a specific overeating cycle exercise that we ask people to basically reflect on and um, identify basically that, like what were the situations that led up to that moment? What were my vulnerability factors to that? And what it can I put in place so that things are different next time? In a nutshell is what we do. It's a DBT type of technique that we use with some of our clients. So how do you differentiate between the, sh- uh, you know, I shouldn't have done that. And what would I do next time? They're not the same thing. And I think that's how you differentiate. <laughs> yeah, I was pleased you said that. I was like, no, no, it's not the same. <laughs> like me, like if I said to Anna right now, Anna, you shouldn't have done that. Then that's me saying, this is you. This is, I'm being critical of you. You've made a mistake. And then if I then said, Anna, what would you do? What would you change about that? Like, what would you do for next time? That's me saying, okay, let's get curious about what we can learn from it, what an opportunity that was to try something different. They are very, very different things. They're not effectively the same thing. But what's really great is that by asking that question, you've answered, you kind of answered it for yourself, which is fantastic of that. You are struggling to differentiate here between like a more hopeful way of questioning and potentially more optimistic way of questioning and that self-criticism. And so this is something to work on for yourself in that and you'll do this work with an eye too um in that like you can ask yourself is this the most is this a critical way of thinking or is this a helpful way of thinking or is it a critical or compassionate way of thinking and I th- think it's important to get curious but if this is the more if your brain goes towards this critical way of thinking more naturally I think it is important to get curious about that and say like why am I intent on being critical towards myself? What benefit do I perceive from being critical to myself? Because there's probably a perceived benefit to that. That's why you're choosing to think that way or you're automatically thinking that way. Um, and get and sometimes we think that being critical drives us to change or being critical actually like motivates us in some way. Like that's super common way of thinking. And actually, like that's not what happens at all. And a more compassionate way of thinking is generally the way that we see change and, and is more a positive way of us thinking or a more effective way of us thinking, rather. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what people fear with self-compassion, right? That they're letting themselves go, they're not taking responsibility when actually it's 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 the exact opposite. Uh but uh the Oh, yeah, but yeah, she's become a self-compassion queen now because she's mm-hmm. been working really hard on it over the last few weeks. I really want to acknowledge that. <laughs> okay, let's do one more question. George's question. Advice or thoughts for when a partner is intimidate, intimidated by mental quote-unquote work? I still have so far to go, but I started therapy around eight months ago and I've been working with Georgia for about two months. My husband knows about my issues around body image tracking and has been supportive of everything. But a recent disagreement about parenting philosophies led him to comment that he felt left behind and somewhat intimidated by the changes to my outlook on things. I'm not going to alter what I'm doing, but I can appreciate it might be difficult to feel like someone you've known for so long, 18 years, has fundamentally changed. I'm not sure if I should leave him to deal with that by himself or encourage him to get to get on my level and do some self-reflection of his own. Such a good question. And what I would say is so much props to your husband, actually, for saying, I feel insecure about this. I feel left behind about this. A lot of people wouldn't communicate that. And that's testament to him. It's testament to your relationship that he feels he can say that and he doesn't just lash out and become condescending towards you or patronizing or critical of you so that's testament to what a strong relationship and what amazing communication you both have so first of all that's phenomenal um I wouldn't encourage him to get onto your level so to speak I think that everyone goes through this journey at their own pace and I saw a reel from someone recently I'm going to look up the name in a minute who spoke about this like we all go through this work at different phases of our life and I think what the best thing you can do is is to show some compassion and to show understanding that and to show him that this is work for yourself but it doesn't change anything about the way that you feel towards him or the way that your relationship is and provide a bit of reassurance I think is probably quite helpful um and 
I think if you encourage them to do it, it can it can become kind of feel quite patronizing to someone, even though it's not and you just want them the best for them. Um, it can feel that way. So I would probably avoid doing that. And if he feels that he wants to have that conversation with you and do some of that stuff for himself, then fantastic. But other than that, all you can really do is consistently work on yourself and take a very non-judgmental approach. It can, I do feel that sometimes when you start to do this work, you can start to feel a little bit judgmental towards others as if like they're not on your level and they're not doing the work. Why wouldn't they want to do the work? And I'm certainly not saying this is you, but I've I've definitely gone down both of these routes before in various relationships in the past. And um, the whole idea of this is so that we can become our best selves for other people as well as ourselves. And what we don't want to do is get lost in like a judgment spiral of that because we, we even if it's because we think we want the best for other people, it can be perceived in that kind of patronizing way. Mm. I was going to say, uh, he has been incredibly vulnerable and, and in sharing how he's feeling. And I, I mean, this is just kind of based on my experience and maybe from, maybe I'm making an assumption here, but whether it's kind of lack of understanding and it's not to say, you need to share the ins and outs of the work that you're doing. But if you can maybe begin to be a bit more open about some of this stuff, you might know that you're working with Georgia on, on your relationship with food. But OK, well, this week I've, I've done this and that's actually changed how I think about this. And and just to again, it's it. I think helping him understand what you're going through is going to help him feel a bit more secure as well. Absolutely agree. So the person um, that I recommend that you follow is, um, I think she's, she's called Nedra or Nidra Tawab. She's a therapist. Um, her Instagram handle is at Nidra. So it's N-E-D-R-A uh, T-A-W-W-A-B. So Nedra Tawab, I think. Um, and she's fantastic. And she's an author um, and she was the one who actually spoke about that specific thing. So I would recommend that you follow her. Okay, great questions, everyone. Keep them coming in. Thanks so much. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, Anna. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, if you did, please do feel free to like, share, subscribe and review. And if you would like to chat to me, then you can find details of my Instagram in the show notes.